Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Chair of War Studies Michael Nyberg, and today I'm with my good friend, Alexander Mika Baridze, the Ruth Herring Knoll Endowed Chair of Professor at Louisiana State University, Shreveport, the author of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, which has received incredibly effusive praise and tons of awards, and his latest book, Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace, both available through Oxford University Press. Alexander, it is wonderful to have you finally in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. I guess uh, I was missing uh, on the cold weather in Louisiana, and <laughs> you decided to bring me here <laughs> on the cold and windy <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we want to greet you in good Pennsylvania fashion. Uh, I want to dive right in, because I know the sand in this hourglass is going to disappear very quickly. Uh, you've done a lot of work on Russian history. Obviously, you were doing this work long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and I want to have a discussion with you about the way that your writing of the past affects your view of the present and vice versa. So let me begin with a broad question that I know is, uh, is a very big question to ask. But how do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine last February, almost a year ago now, how has that affected the way you've thought about Russian history as you've been writing, researching, and thinking about this? Um, I don't think it affected uh, in, in a profound way because uh, it, it's kind of uh, sad as I said that I am to say it, um, I expected and kind of anticipated it. Uh, last fall, um, I was exchanging emails with my colleagues um, and I was, you know, they were asking me about the Russian buildup and I was telling them that the kind of war is impending and it's forthcoming. Um, I, I think, miscalculated the the scale of it. I thought it would be more on the eastern, in the eastern provinces. And the reason why I kind of expected it is because what I see in, in Russian history is not abrupt changes, but a lot of continuities. Uh, today we've talked about um, kind of the paradigms of Russian history, and we've kind of, I, I, I touched upon the issue that whether we traced from early Russian imperial, Rus late Russian imperial, Soviet, or modern Russian history, uh, we see a lot of things that remain same, kind of continuity, very few abrupt changes. Um, and that's why the conflict in Ukraine, to me, has deep historical roots. And once you kind of look at history, you look at the complexity of matters at stake, then uh, uh, we get a better understanding of, of the nuance of the present. So for those listeners, uh, Alexander just gave a, a wonderful talk to our Eurasia Studies class here in, in which you talked about some of those continuities from the 18th century really all the way forward. So not just in the, the, the fact of war, but, but your view of history, your writing of history, a lot of what you were talking about uh, this afternoon spoke to not just the fact of war, but the way the Russians think about war and security being consistent, as you said at the end, uh, across across ideologies. So reading the, the, the 18th century and 19th century history the way that you have, how does that help you understand, again, not just the big strategic, but also other levels of, of Russian history? 
I think uh, one thing to okay, uh, that you alluded to is that irrespective of ideological um, kind of uh, wrapping, the toolbox or the set of tools that the Russian government has been using for the past 300 years essentially is the same, especially when we come to the grand strategic thinking. We've talked about the defensive expansionism. We've talked about kind of the willingness to exploit the internal weaknesses of neighboring states. Uh, uh, and uh, we see that in the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century. And that's why I don't want people to kind of look at the modern Russian um, government and its behavior as in isolation. Uh, because it gives us a bit wider, uh, 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 you know, looking at a wider historical context will allow us to appreciate both what Russia is capable of, but also what is the wider impact of the Russian uh, actions, um, including by the, uh, in, in, in this case, invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, this war, needless to say, didn't start in February of 2020. 22, we you know we can trace it back to 2014. In fact, my argument would be to trace it it way back to 2008, uh, when we see kind of revivalism and 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 the 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 sense of revival of imperial uh, greatness uh, really come to fore in, in Russian strategic thinking. Um, and and to understand that mindset, we need to look at the 18th century, look at the uh, first half of the 19th century when Russian Empire really comes to the apex of of its power. So I think there's two things going on here. One that I observed too when when COVID broke out, I started getting a lot of phone calls for for requests to talk about the the influenza epidemic at the end of World War One. And what we've been talking about is a kind of way that historians. The way that I've described it to people, it's almost like you're speaking another language. You, you, can, you can read the terrain, you can read the history in a way, because in a sense you read the language, and I mean that metaphorically. The history lets you see something. But I, and I, you're shaking your head vigorously, so I'm, I'm assuming you agree with that <laughs> statement. Yes. I want to almost reverse engineer that process and ask you, how does an event like the war in Ukraine then affect the way that you're writing and the way that you're thinking about the history that you're writing. I mean, I think we both know, we both accept as axiomatic that that we historians are affected by the time periods in which we're writing as much as we are the time periods we're writing about. So can you talk a little bit about how that changes the way that you then go about your writing, your thinking? Uh, let me come, maybe uh, divide that question into two parts. One, I think you've touched upon a very important issue of kind of historical profession or historical thinking, because one of the things that happened um, in the wake of Soviet col uh, Union's collapse is is Russia really moved to the um, periphery, maybe, uh, if, if I'm allowed to say, of the academic thinking. Uh, a good example of this being that when the war, um, you know, the invasion of Ukraine began in February of 2022, um, in the state of Louisiana, the whole state, in all of the colleges and universities, there were only three individuals specializing in Russia and only one, and that's me, who dealt military political history. So here we have kind of one of the large, largest states in, in our union with virtually no program that focuses on educating the public about the Russian history, about the relevance of, of Russia to, to the modern day politics. Um, that's a bit changed, for example, the Louisiana's, you know, they, our main campus in Baton Rouge now hired a, a Russian specialist, but it's still, it's a drop in the bucket. So I think one of the challenges we're facing today is kind of, we, uh, we need to, uh, we need to re, re, you know, have the historical thinking, the wider understanding of the area, but unless we have investment in the faculty and developing the programs, that's missing. 
Now, writing it um, in a kind of thinking historically, um, it, it's, it's always a challenging problem uh, because uh, once you look this broader historical um, context, it, it, it shapes you under you know vision and experience really in, in, in the present. That is, I think, one of the reasons why I don't do modern history like you do. Um, in that, for me, in many respects, interest in Hardcore history ends at, this, at 1914. Um, <laughs> Mine begins in 1914. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that I, I feel that on on a personal basis that I cannot maintain that objectivity dealing with modern affairs, especially because my family has gone through a lot of the things that I'll have to to deal with, uh, kind of dealing on the, on, the, on the description of historical. Um, and so, in order to maintain that certain hand um, distance from 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 the material that I'm dealing with. I, I try to explore 18th century. Uh, so that's kind of one approach. And, and, and uh, as you look, however, at, in the 18th century, you realize that, yes, it might be you know, 200, 250 years uh, removed from us, uh, but many of the challenges that we are facing today are actually challenges that um, Russian state or its neighbors faced vis-a-vis Russia in the 18th century. Um, that includes, for example, the Russian willingness to intervene by exploiting the domestic situations in neighboring states, so uh, Russian policies towards Poland, Lithuania, uh, in, uh, or to Ottoman Empire, can, uh, uh, can be drawn parallels to the Russian um, policies in eastern Ukraine. Right? Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the most fascinating parts about your talk this afternoon, that, that what the Soviet Union did in trying to undermine democracies uh, and, and states on its border is, is really just a continuation of policies that come from the Romanovs, which is something that, I mean, I've argued to students in class too, that we have to, we have to look for continuity as much as we sometimes look for change. Yes, I mean, think uh, it kind of in Polish partitions case, the Russians support for the uh, for the you know Barg of Targovica, or later on for different uh, magnates, uh, can be kind of drawn parallels to modern day Russian support for the patronage networks within Ukraine, within Georgia, within neighboring states, or this kind of the Russian. Uh, justification for the war being the abuse and mistreatment, alleged mistreatment of Russian speakers in Ukraine, you know, you can find a, an equivalent of it for Russian uh, uh, kind of um, uh, willingness to reach out and intervene in the Ottoman affairs on alleged, uh, ostensibly to protect the fellow Orthodox believers there. So there's a lot of things that I think when we look in the early modern period that can be relevant to modern day, and, and especially it gives us... Um, I think one of the things I tell my students is that history is perceived and felt differently in 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 Eastern Europe or in Europe in general, but Eastern Europe in particularly. And I definitely uh, want to come back to that idea, mm-hmm. but I want to put a question to you point blank. Um, if you were to start your Napoleonic Wars book today, do you think it would have looked different than the one that you published? Mm-hmm. That is pre-Ukraine. I assume. I mean, I know yeah. you wrote and finished that book yeah. before the, the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Even though you, as an historian, were able to see the likelihood of that, the overdetermined nature of that. If you were to start that book tomorrow, would it look different? Do you think? No, uh, because I think in some respects I was able to catch important element in Russian thinking of the late 18th century that is still present today, and that is. Uh, looking at the world as sphere of of influence, because in in essence, what Putin's regime is trying to do here is is go back to the this early modern notion of spheres of influence, where each great power has a kind of 
uh, a heartland and the periphery that it's it's theirs. And in this book, in the Napoleonic Wars, I uh, kind of talk about various efforts by the Russian government, different memorandums they prepared, dis- different discussions they had to carve out that sphere of influence. And you see a lot of similarities in terms of Russian policy in the Nubian principalities, in what is today southern Ukraine, in Poland, in Caucasus, that um, are similar to the Russian thinking today. So I think the book um, will not be that different if I write if I have started uh, writing it today. And your point, we probably should have brought this up earlier, but you're a, a native of the Republic of Georgia, lived in Kazakhstan for for quite a while. We probably should have put that in, <laughs> in, the, in my introduction of you. Yeah. Uh, your point about the West and East having different, or Russia and the and the West having different historical interpretations. I just gave a lecture here in which I sort of ridiculed this uh, end of history idea that was popular in the '90s that the end of the Cold War somehow meant that that we were done with this dialectical process and. As you noted, Western historians wrote this way. Western publics thought this way. We cut Russian history jobs. The army cut back on its understanding of Russia with sort of the assumption that this problem was solved. Um, at what point do you think—I know we, we, you, you don't want to go past 1914, but at what point do you think that started to go off the rails for the Russians? As at what point do you think Russia sort of said, that's not the way we're understanding this history, and, and we're going to reinterpret our history— to understand this in a different way, I think. Well, it, I think it's a continuous process for, for certainly for every nation, but for, especially for Russian. And and we see each each of the government in the past three hundred years, each of the government weaponizing history to uh, to suit its specific interests. Uh, the last book I wrote on Kutuzov, um, you see this figure, this historical figure, uh, used as a as a as an ideological tool by exploiting his history, his career to suit the imperial interests first, and then uh, the Soviet government's interests. So for example, even though in the um, Tsar personally disliked, I would you know, loathe Kutuzov, he had no qualms about turning Kutuzov after he died into national institution. Uh, interestingly, Soviet early Soviet government denounced Kutuzov as the serf-owning, right, this imperialist, czarist general, but then Stalin decided to use him as the shining example of the Russian strategic thinking of luring the enemy deep into, into Russian heartlands and then striking back and destroying it, ostensibly what Stalin tended to do all along against the Nazis. And hence we have kind of a whole genre of hist- you know, uh, historical think- uh, writing developing in Soviet period that suits that. And, uh, and, and today Kutuzov again comes, makes a comeback. Um, I, I talk in the book that in in, in public polls he's listed in uh, consistently in top fifteen most important world personalities in mind of uh, of uh, kind of average Russian and an individual that probably very few people in the West have ever even heard of before the exactly. book and hopefully many more exactly. will now and then uh, in this this September um, so every September uh, Russian government celebrates the alleged Napoleon's defeated Borodino if you ask the French of course. It's the French victory. But what, what struck me particularly fascinating for this past September celebration is that there were massive posters, uh, government-sponsored posters, that showed Kutuzov in the background, kind of this larger-than-life figure. And in front of him, you have the more recent um, uh, military figures of the Russian past, including the rebel commanders from eastern Ukraine. And it's like Kutuzov leads this new generation of military Russian military leaders towards the glory. So he, it's, again, uh, the weaponizing of history. And, and to go back to my earlier comment, I generally believe, and having lived uh, in, in, you know, uh, 
through formative years of my life in, in that part of the world is that history is, is perceived, felt, and lived through quite differently. In places like Georgia, you will sit, you know, it's rarely you have a conversation without Georgians kind of bragging about some medieval exploits or debates about the, the great victory that the Georgians scored in 1121. That's 900 years ago, yeah. and it, yet it's it, it recounted as if it was yesterday. Same applies in terms of Russian experiences, because of, uh, one of the narratives we see nowadays is this kind of, we can do it again, a narrative uh, that the Russian government is certainly is pushing, and that we can do it again, it harks back to the great imperial accomplishments of the Russian state. Yeah, I definitely wanted to pick up on that. I was thinking, as you said, the French would describe Borodino as a victory. I was thinking maybe the 50 or so people that you and I know would, but the vast majority of French people <laughs> probably don't have any any clue. Like That history has receded and disappeared from the backgrounds of many in the West, whereas it has not in the East. And my second to last trip to Paris at the Bibliothèque Nationale, I bought this book by Alexander Wirth, a short book. Uh, the title roughly translates to Putin, Historian-in-Chief. Mm -hmm. And it's about exactly what you're saying, this kind of weaponization by Putin. So in what ways is Putin and the, the kind of Russian elite around him using Kutuzov, using the 18th century? I know Worth makes a big deal out of the Battle of Poltova. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get the date, 1705, right? Nine. 1709. 1709. Mm -hmm. I got close. I got within yeah. four years. <laughs> so in, in what ways uh, is Putin kind of bringing, the, is he creating a new history or is he just kind of playing on a history that's already there for Russians? I think one of the core elements um, is that uh, early on, and we talk about like, you know, 2004, 2005, there was a, uh, a steady and consistent effort to rewrite textbooks, history textbooks. And in these rewritten versions of textbooks, uh, you see greater emphasis on imperial greatness, but also reassessing um, the Soviet era. And of course, the most famous, I think, part of it that listeners might have come across was uh, Putin's kind of reassessment of the Soviet Union as not the evil empire, but rather uh, a, a state that brought a lot of benefits and, and improvements, material improvements to the millions of the Soviet citizens. Uh, but, you know, there might have been some excesses committed along the way, but the good outweighed the, the bad. And of course, Putin famously uh, stated that the collapse of Soviet Union in his mind was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And I think that is the core around which the narrative was constructed of the past two decades, that uh, you know, Russia is the successor to the empire, uh, to the Soviet Union, and that neither the empire nor Soviet Union done anything, uh, anything wrong. And I'm going to try a really bad segue here, but another difference in Russia, of course, is that there is no viable civic state to provide alternative history. It's all coming from the central government. You work for a university where you have tenure and this ability to create a kind of separate history. See that transition? So now I want to talk <laughs> in the second half of our time here. I want to talk about that history. Uh, I, I am uh, a person, I think I'm, I'm reasonably productive as an historian, but I think you put me to shame. So I want to talk a little bit, not just about your productivity, but the books that you write um, are are big books. Kutusov here is, you were, you were actually saying earlier that if I misbehaved, you were going to have somebody throw this book <laughs> at me. Uh, this is a, what, a 900, uh, 717 only. or so? Yeah, only, right? So I, I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about that writing process with these very, very large books. Are you 
the kind of person who envisions a book to be this big, or do you find, as I sometimes do, if I want to talk about this, I have to talk about that, and that a book organically begins to grow bigger than you had originally intended? What, what is that thought process like for you? Um, I think the first thing I need to mention is that I am uh, very fortunate to have an amazing editor at, at Oxford, um, uh, Timothy Bent, because... Um, each of the books that I've done with Oxford was commissioned at about 100,000 uh, words, and I st- you know, invariably I delivered uh, two and a half to three times longer. So, if Tim, if you're listening, I had a book with you that I did, and you told me I could not go over 110, <laughs> 120,000 words, and I did not. So Ooh. we're going to have to have a conversation about oh, that. But sorry, anyway, <laughs> but, but, but how does this process go? As, as you, yeah. as you, I mean, with a book like the Napoleonic Wars book, uh, obviously that's a topic that could be a seven, eight volume history, right? There's a ton of material that's out there. At what point do you sort of say, all right, I've got my arms around this now, how does that process work? How do you go from thinking it'll be a hundred thousand words to saying I got to go back to Tim and say, "Hey, I'm looking at I'm looking at twice or two and a half times that amount." I think uh, you alluded to the answer in that once I I, I start with an outline, of course, and and, and kind of um, um, having a general idea of what I will I will say and how I'm I will say in, in the book. Uh, but then it will become kind of the issue of how much historical context, kind of explanation I need, I need to uh, give an average reader. And uh, that usually adds that flesh to, to the skeleton that, that I already have. Uh, um, and then I think it's, it's a back and forth process between me and Tim in many respects, because Napoleonic Wars was, as long as it is, it was longer when I submitted. And Tim kind of went through with a fine pen kind of marked, you know, do we need this context? Oh, and how, many, how many words was it when you submitted I think it to I, him? I gave him more, three, 320,000. And what did it end out at? 240. Okay, for, for our listeners who are listening, an average academic monograph is somewhere about 100 to 125,000. I think the longest book I've written was about 120,000 once it, once it went through the process. So you gave Tim something that was considerably longer than that. Yes. And then how did that process go when he came back to you and said... I'm sure some version of I love this, but it's too long. Th- then what do you do? Well, I th- you know, I've, I've told Tim many times that I think his name should be on the on the cover of of the Napoleonic Wars because I think it was a a process where he would identify an area that I, when I was writing, thought was crucial in explanation. But Tim, having this fresh set of eyes, would say it's not really that crucial to the story. Look at it again, and I'll reread it, and I'll realize that. As a maybe a specialist, I think it's important, but it can be condensed. Yeah. And so that's a kind of process of editing, refinement, polishing that allowed me, I think, to condense the book um, considerably so without necessarily sacrificing the details, which is, you know, hearing from the kind of people who read the book that uh, they love that detailed narrative that I offer in the book, but without necessarily overburdening them w- with, with that. And this is where a good editor and, and, and an author have to sort of work together. There has to be a narrative. There has to be something that a reader can sort of follow a story. But for us, I find, you know, I've had books where my my first draft of them, I find I'm kind of jumping back and forth in time a little bit because of the way that I want to explain certain concepts. And invariably, the editors will come back and say, well, that you're breaking that narrative too much. So is this a process that you struggle with? Or, or did you, working with Tim, figure out, okay... 
this is how I'm going to do it. And, and, and if so, do you organize that around events, around people? How do you structure a narrative as big mm-hmm. and as grand as something, as the kind of books you've written? So I think uh, you, you, uh, the Kudos of Biography was um, kind of simple in that it, it, you know, as all biographical genre, you have a you have a story to follow. You, you have a man's yeah, life to, exactly. to, or a person's life to structure the book. So around. that I think is the easiest one to 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 structure and write. Um, the currently I'm I'm working for in, uh, another book for Tim, and it is the International History of Louisiana Purchase, and I think that is also more or less simpler to structure because we're looking at a snapshot of history. And um, Napoleonic Wars, however, was a bit uh, more challenging because. Even though we have a chronological time frame from 1792 to 1815, um, because of the global reach of this war, we had to spend actually considerable time figuring out, figuring out whether it should be just chronological, geographical, or whether we should do some thematical and comparative. So ultimately, we kind of after different experimentation and different drafts, uh, we settled on chronological but geographical as well. So kind of try to mesh these two approaches, and I think it works. There's certain, I think the, the fear is, um, or the threat is of, of having some repetition and redundancy, but I try to keep it to the minimum. Um, and your periodization discussion, I mean, historians argue about this constantly. There's a book over your left shoulder I'm looking at that says the First World War ended in 1923. So, you know, there's <laughs> folks who argue it doesn't until yeah. 1989. So, you know, the, these periodization efforts that we go through are are not insignificant discussions because they shape the way that you're going to frame the book. And there's a way in which I'm sure you could take the Louisiana Purchase back to the 17th century. There's a way you could have taken Kutuzov's life back several generations if you wanted to, but that would have been a one million word word book for yeah. you. I think in, the, in terms of the Napoleonic Wars, the the uh, one thing I would maybe dif- do differently is uh, add, uh, add a, a, another chapter on kind of larger ramifications of post-Napoleonic period. Uh, some of my call, I think after I finished the book, there were really interesting studies that came out on the post-Napoleonic security systems, post-Napoleonic financial systems that were directly affected, created um, by Napoleon uh, or Napoleonic Wars. And I think that would be an, a, a really good chapter to add to the maybe revised and expanded version of it. <laughs> so where are you starting the Louisiana Purchase book right now in your, in your outlining and in your head? Where are you beginning that project? I actually, um, um, I'm right right now, I'm kind of looking through the Seven Years' War as, as a turn, one of the crucial turning points. Um, because not the least because Louisiana ends up being Spanish province, uh, but I think that's where my, to me this kind of in, the, the introductory chapter is is kind of outlining early Louisiana history. But the core is uh, from a strategic point of view, from the point of view of the great power relations, it's Seven Years' War. And I have to ask this too: when you're writing these books that are three hundred thousand plus words, are you someone that writes in dedicated bursts of time, or are you one of those I'm going to write? X thousand words every day. What, what's, your, what, what's your goal to get to that point of 300,000 or so words? So um, I, I'm, I actually usually have several manuscripts at different stages of, 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 of development. Another thing I greatly admire about you, I need to focus <laughs> on one project, put it to bed, and start another one. Uh, and, but that, what that means, however, is that um, I effectively have a schedule on, on for every day knowing what I'm going to be writing on. And my task is, I think I'm following Isaac Isimov has that, you know, 750 words a day. So um, I'm not aiming 1,000, 2,000 or whatever. If I write seven, 750 words a day that are good and acceptable, that's what I do. But 
It's every day, no matter what. Are you one of those guys, you've hit your 750, you're reasonably happy with them, I'm done, I'm going to go do something else, or are you, 750 is good, I'm going to keep plowing on? That's right. Yeah, I mean, and I think we've talked about this earlier, but uh, I'm a night owl. Um, I I start usually writing at 10, and I write until I really, inspiration, the muse leaves me. And usually she leaves me around two o'clock. So. so that part doesn't doesn't. I'm not a I'm not an evening. I'm not a night owl. I'm a morning person. The part that astonishes me is that you're up again, very early in the morning. That's what family does to you. Yeah, well, Kids we need we, to go to school. Yeah, and, and you, you don't drink nearly as much coffee as I think would be required to get that done. Uh, but but if you are if you are pushing forward and everything is going the way you want, seven fifty for you is not a is not a ceiling or a limit. You'll keep no, going. Yeah, because Kutuzov, as long as it is, I wrote. It in uh, writing component of it was in eleven months, so yeah, which is astonishingly fast for a book like yeah. this. I um, think, so and, res- you're, and you're no. working multiple books at multiple stages along the yeah. way. Yeah, some of it, uh, some of it is not as research intensive as Kutuzov. Uh, you know, for example, one of my passions uh, is memoir literature, so I constantly kind of keep myself, you know, um, preoccupied by translating uh, different memoirs. So I have um, three three volumes said that is coming out this year that was uh, that started al- alongside Kutuzov's book. Um, and then, uh, you know, eating the elephant one bite at a, ch- at a time, <laughs> kinda, you know, with 750 word increments allows you to, by the end of the year, realize that you can pursue multiple projects and actually have it. So the, the secret is simply uh, sticking to the plan and, and, and consistently following it. Well, unfortunately, the sand is run out of this hourglass just about, but this podcast is a, a reminder to me once again of how lucky I am having such smart friends. Uh, I want to thank Alexander for taking the time to sit and talk to us. I want to thank our listeners. Please subscribe. I'm Michael Nyberg saying goodbye from the War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.